The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, uh, would you open them or your apps, would you turn them on to John chapter 1. John, the first chapter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. The only not synoptic gospel. Synoptic meaning same looking. So John's a little different from the other gospels. And we're going to read uh, his account of the incarnation of Christ. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Stephen began a series uh, last week that we're going to do during the Christmas season, actually just another week and uh, Christmas Eve. We're calling it Surprises, and really the greatest surprise of all at Christmas time is the fact that an infant became, or the infinite became an infant. The infinite became an infant. Father, as we look at the Word, we have worshipped in song, and the the beauty of uh, watching these kids lead us and their innocence we're grateful for. And now, Father, as we open the word, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, and that you'd change our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Christmas surprises. How many of you like surprises? You like to be surprised. Let me see your hands. Raise them high. Keep them high. Yeah, there we go. How many of you hate surprises, don't like to be surprised, and like things? Yeah, there we go. About even, actually, out there. Uh, my, Bev does not like surprises. I mean, she does not like surprises. How many of, of you ladies, if you came home at the end of a day and your husband is standing in the driveway and he has already packed your bags, he, he's picked everything out, packed your bags, he's loaded the car up, he's arranged for sitting and everything else, and he said, I'm going to capture you and we're going to escape for a little vacation, unknown destination. I've got it all figured out. Everything's taken care of. How many of you ladies would just be so excited? There you go. Yeah, look at that. Guys, take a look if your wife raised her hand. Okay, take a look. Lady, raise them high. Keep them high. Wave them in his face. There you go. Now, how many of you uh, ladies would say that would be my worst nightmare ever and I would not get in that car? Here we go. Yeah, I see that. I see that hand. I see that hand. Yeah, Bev would rather have a root canal than for me to do something like that. I'm going to tell you, that would be the closest thing to divorce that ever happened in our family. But Christmas is filled with surprises. It's filled with surprises now, and it was filled with surprises. And now there are a lot of surprises. There was a five-year-old girl who was surprised. She sat on Santa's lap for the first time last Christmas. And Santa looked at her, and he asked the usual question, what would you like for Christmas, my dear? And she stood aghast. She was horrified. Her mouth was open, and she said, didn't you read my email? (laughs) Christmas surprises. The greatest surprise of all took place about 2,000 years ago. The, The greatest surprise in all of history is the fact that the God of universe will become a baby. The God of the universe will become a baby. Now, John's gospel is a little different. There is no stable. There are no shepherds. There are no angels. There's no Mary and Joseph. I mean, we don't find the normal trappings of the Christmas story because John's purpose is different. Uh, Later in John's gospel, jot down your notes, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. You can take a look at it later. But what it says in John 20, uh, John 20, 30 and 31 is, Jesus did many other signs, John says, but I've just recorded these in order that you know, know that he is the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
So John says, I'm writing with a specific purpose. He says, there are other signs. In John's gospel, there are seven signs and seven discourses related to those signs. And John says, Jesus did many other things. In fact, we could even fill the books of history with them. He did all these things, but I've chosen seven to prove that he is the Christos. He's the Messiah. So, so when John writes to us, he, he writes this, this incarnation message, if you will, in the first 14 verses of this chapter in a different way than the other Gospels. No angels, no shepherds, no sheep, no stable, no Mary, no Joseph, only someone or something called the Word. So what's the purpose and what's the point and what does John teach? Well, we're going to look at revealing the infant, then we're going to look at responding to the infant. Revealing the infant and responding to the infant. Revealing the infant in John chapter 1. The infant is infinite. The infant is infinite. That may go without saying, but John wants us to make sure that we fully understand what happens. In the beginning was the Word. John 1.1, the first clause there. There are three clauses there, but he, he begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word. Now, when you read the words in the beginning, when you hear the words in the beginning, where does your mind race to? Where does it go to? Genesis 1.1. Because in Genesis 1.1, we're all familiar with that verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Quote that with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you said you can't memorize scripture, you've got it down. Look at that. You've got a verse under your belt. You can all remember Jesus wept. You've got two verses under your belt right there. Okay, in the beginning, it's no accident that when John begins his gospel, he begins with these words through the inspiration of the Spirit. He wants to take us back to the Genesis account. In the beginning. But when everything was created, in the beginning, way back before there was time, in the beginning, John writes, and these are his exact words, in the beginning, he says, was. Now, one of the key words here is was. It occurs four times in the first two verses. Take a look at it, circle it in your Bible, draw lines to it. In the beginning was. The, the word was there, that particular verb, using this uh, particular setting, uh, it's the imperfect tense. Imperfect tense means continuous action in the past. You remember your English grammar? How many of you remember that from English grammar? If you went to school in Louisiana, you didn't even learn English grammar, actually. <laughs> but but, but it's, it's continuous action in the past. So John says, in the beginning... It doesn't say this word became or this word was created or this word came into existence. He says this word, whomever, whatever it was, the word, that this word that he's talking about was. In the beginning was the word. Now, the word for word, there's logos. Many of you know that. You've studied this before. Logos is the particular Greek word used there. In the Greek mind, which would have been the culture that John was a part of in writing to, as well as the world itself, as John writes these words, the logos is the ultimate in reasoning. It's the ultimate in wisdom. And so John is writing to his audience saying, the ultimate in reason, the ultimate in wisdom is this word that has existed before time was. That's basically what he's saying. He's saying, this word that I'm writing about, This word that I'm writing about has always been. That's the point that John was making. In the beginning was. Whoever or whomever or whatever John is writing about, he's saying it was already in existence when the heavens and the earth were created. So John's opening clause, his opening statement is, the one I'm writing about is preexistent. In the beginning was the word. This word that I'm writing about, whomever it is, whatever it is, has always existed in eternity past. Before there was creation, before there was a created, there was this word. Now it's interesting when we study the Christmas story, one of our favorite passages comes out of the prophet Micah's book. In Micah's book, it tells us about where the Messiah would be born. 
But it also tells us something else that we oftentimes ignore or don't remember. But it's for you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Then look at the last sentence. His goings forth are from when? Long ago, from the days of what? Eternity. So whomever the Messiah would be, whoever would be born in Bethlehem, would be one who is preexistent and eternal. Many times we look at Micah, we talk about him being the Savior being born in Bethlehem, but we forget that whoever this Savior is going to be was one whose days were eternal. Therefore, it's no mistake that when John writes in John 1.1, he says, In the beginning was continuous action, past tense, before the world was even created, this word existed. He's eternal. Whoever, whatever the word is, John hadn't identified it yet. Now we know because we studied the word. But whomever, whatever John is identifying or writing about, he says this word was preexistent. This word was eternal, has always been, and will always be. So, then he says, and the word was with God. The word was with God. So what does that mean? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The word used for with there is pros, it means to be distinct from. He's with God, but distinct from God. So he's with him. We might say, I might say, Bev was with me last night. Now that does not mean Bev was me, but Bev was in my presence. And that's a little bit what the word means. In the beginning was the word, the word was in the presence of God. So whoever or whatever this word is, this logos is, it is eternal from the past but it's also distinct from God, distinct from God. And so the question that would have to come to our mind, if this Logos is distinct from the Father, is it less than the Father? Do you understand that logic? So he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, that is distinct from God, in the presence of God. So the question you have to ask is, well, if he's distinct from God and with God, is he less than God? And with the resounding symbol, John concludes verse 1 and says, and the Word, by the way, was God. This Word was deity. This word that I'm writing about, whomever or whatever, John has not identified it yet in the first verse. He's saying, I want you to know that the word that I write about, the logos I write about, is eternal. This logos I write about is distinct from God, but this logos I write about is God. And so in the very first verse, John establishes three things for us to understand. That that, that this logos I'm writing about is eternal, distinct from the Father, and also equal to the Father. John underscores his point in verse 2. He reiterates what he's just said. He was in the beginning with God. Now, all of a sudden, the funnel is narrowing. You see, up until now, the Logos has not been identified, but you go to chapter 1, verse 2, circle the word he, all of a sudden, we know this will be a person. We also know this will be a masculine person because he is a masculine word. And so what we see here is we move from being the word to being specifically a person, specifically a male. So whoever this word is that John is writing about and talking about that is eternal, that is distinct from God, and that is God, will be a person and will be a male. So who is this? What's he writing about? What's he trying to tell us? Well, John does not leave us to guess. If you drop down to verse 14 in the first chapter, John identifies who this is. 
He's just talked about John the Baptist, and he's talked about the one who will come after him, who's a greater light. And it says in verse 14, and the word became flesh. This he, this person who is fully God, fully man, became flesh. That's John's description of the incarnation. That's John's description of Christmas. John is saying the infinite became finite, the invisible became visible, the eternal entered time, the creator entered creation. He is fully God and he is fully man. Totally. This word became flesh. And this word dwelt among us. Now, the word dwell there is quite interesting as well. It's a, it's a form of a, a verb that means to live in a tent. This flesh tabernacled. This flesh lived in a tent among us. Now, the Old Testament people reading this would understand what he's saying. In the Old Testament, God tented with Israel in the tabernacle. God tented with Israel in the temple. His glory was present in both those places. In fact, John goes on and says, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. In the Old Testament, they would understand when it says the word came to dwell among us, they would remember the one who tented among them. God the Father had tented among them a Shekinah glory in the tabernacle in the temple. Now, one of the things we often miss is found in the book of Revelation. All the way back in Revelation, talking about our future in the presence, our, our future state, it says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven passed away, first earth passed away, no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city of Jerusalem coming down. And then in verse 3 of chapter 21, I heard a loud voice, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall, and it's the same word, dwell, he shall tent among us. You see, what makes heaven heaven, too often in today's age, there's a big focus on, well, what's the new heaven and new earth going to be like? Is it going to be here, et cetera, et cetera? Well, here's the reality. What makes the new heaven and new earth significant is that God tents among us. It's the presence of God. There's nothing wrong with studying these other things, but the reality of that new creation, what makes it significant is the fact, the same word that's used in John chapter 1 of Jesus, the same word that refers to the tabernacle, is the same word used in Revelation 21 that teaches us that God will tent, he'll dwell among his people. Wow. That's amazing. You've got this thread running through the scriptures to show us of God's glory. The infant is infinite. That should cause us to go, wow. You know, at Christmas time, you get into a routine. And uh, the routine is, you know, the calendar, Thanksgiving comes, and that weekend you start setting up decorations, and the house gets decorated, and there are parties to go to, and there's certain foods to cook, and you get the family invited. And it's the same thing you've done year in and year out, year in and year out for many years. And I love it. This is my favorite time of the year. I just love it. But it can become rather routine, can it? And the busyness kind of captures us. I mean, there's so much to do and so many places to go and so many things you want to do and you want to expose kids and grandkids to that sometimes I think we fail to forget the significance of the whole thing, that the infinite, the infant is infinite. That babe in the cradle is God become man. The Word become flesh. So when John writes, in the beginning was the Word, he's eternal. And the Word was with God, he's distinct from God. And the Word was God. And, and this Word came to dwell among us. We should go, wow, I can't believe that. 
That's absolutely amazing that God would become man and dwell here among us. Why would he do that? How could he do that? I I mean, it should just blow our circuits. Remember the first time time you saw the mountains? Maybe it's the Rockies. You're driving through West Texas. You're driving through West Texas. And you're driving through West Texas. (laughs) I mean, you never get out of there. But then all of a sudden, you see the majesty of the Rockies. And you go, wow. Remember when your baby was born? I mean, that baby's born, you're in the delivery room, and guys on the side of the bed just sweating buckets, doing all the hard work while the wife's got an epidural. And, <laughs> you know. Yeah, send me your emails, that's okay. But... Uh, <coughs> But, but I, I mean, and all of a sudden, all that hard work, and that baby comes out, and you go, wow, look at this. Wow. And maybe the first time, maybe you snorkeled or went scuba diving. The first time you see the beauty of what's underneath the water in the ocean. I'll never forget doing that for the first time and going, wow, that's amazing. I'll never forget the first time I saw Bev. Here's the reality. The fact that the eternal infinite God became an infant should cause us to go, wow, I can't get over this. I cannot get over this. Look at what he has done. Charles Wesley captured the truth of this in a Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing. And uh, we're actually going to sing it at the end of the service. Uh, Bobby didn't want to. He said it's the hardest Christmas carol of all to sing, and it's his least favorite because of that. And I, I called him Friday and said, we're going to sing it at the end. He said, no, we're not. And I said, yes, we are, so we're going to sing it at the end. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, so in that Christmas carol, Charles Wesley, who wrote it, said this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men, it should say, to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. This is John chapter 1. Hail the incarnate deity, the one who is eternal and who is God, the incarnate deity, the one who came, who is deity, that means he's God. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. It's absolutely an amazing thing that the God, that's the greatest surprise ever. That God would come to dwell with man. The Logos, the Word, the eternal, infinite one would become an infant. He's also the creator. Look at verse 3. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He's saying I, that Christ is part of the creative, the, the creative act. The, the word, the Logos, Christ was active in the work of creation. In the first half of that verse, the positive statement of Christ as creator. In the second half, it emphasizes there are no exceptions. Everything that's come into being has come into being through him. In, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes it this way, In him all things were created, in Christ that is, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the creator, the one who has given us life. He is the life giver and the life sustainer. John Stott writes in his book on the cross, Grace is God loving, grace is God stopping, grace is God coming to the rescue, grace is God giving himself generously in and through 
Jesus Christ. That's the incarnation. That's the incarnation. Augustine, the great church father, said, How great a God is he who gives God. Do you understand what he's saying? How great a God is he who sends God, who gives God for man. One of the beauties of the incarnation, one of the wow factors, one of the things that should make us go, aha. One of those aha moments is the truth of the incarnation, that God came to dwell among us. The Christmas message, writes Chuck Swindoll, Emmanuel, God with us, he who resided in heaven, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, willingly descended into our world. He breathed our air, felt our pain, knew our sorrows, and died for our sins. He didn't come to frighten us, but to show us the way to warmth and safety. If I could change it up some, I would say to salvation and safety. Why did he come? He came for this purpose. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and nothing is coming to being except through him. Then we find in the next verse, verse 4, the infant is also life and light. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. And what we find in those two verses is that Christ is life. When we say that Christ is life, he's not the one who just gives physical life. He's the one who gives spiritual life. In fact, that would become a theme in John's gospel. In John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the what? I am the resurrection and the life. And then in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There it is twice in John's gospel. One of the major points that John makes, these are two of the I am statements that Jesus makes. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is the life giver and the life sustainer. So let me ask you a question. If he is indeed the life giver and the life sustainer, he's the one who gives life and he is the one who sustains life. Why would we turn anywhere else to try and find meaning If he's a life giver and the life sustainer, why would we go anywhere else to find meaning and purpose in life? In 30 plus years of ministry, I've seen people look for meaning and purpose in a lot of places. I'll be happy when you fill in that blank. I'll be happy when. And you see, if it's apart from Christ, you'll never be satisfied. I'll be happy when I have this much money in my retirement account. I'll be happy when I get this position in the corporation. I'll be happy when I find a spouse who is like. I'll be happy when they change to become like. I'll be happy when, or you fill in that blank however way you want. The reality of it is, if he is the life giver and the life sustainer, why would we look anywhere else to find meaning and purpose in life? Solomon writes about that in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says in the second chapter, he said, I went after laughter, so he brought court jesters into the palace. Then he says, I I went about building estates and parks. And so he had this massive construction project all over Israel. And then he said, I had the pleasures of men. He had 700 concubines, 300 wives. He had had all these women, and he, he thought he could find pleasure in sexual escapades. He had everything that this world could offer. He was the, the smartest man on the planet. He accumulated all this stuff. But at the end of that chapter, you know what Solomon says? Vanity of vanity. It's all vanity. 
Apart from God, it's all meaningless. So if he's the giver of life and sustainer of life, why would you look for meaning in life? In another friendship, another relationship, another sexual escapade, another rung on the ladder, another degree, another research project, you fill in that blank. He is the life giver and life sustainer, and the meaning and purpose of life is found in him and him only. We meet a lot of people who are looking for meaning and purpose. You stare into the darkness. Your husband slumbers next to you in sleep. The ceiling fan whirls above you. Fifteen minutes, the alarm's going to sound. The demands of the day will shoot you like a clown out of a cannon into a three-ring circus of meetings and bosses and baseball practices. For the millionth time, you'll make breakfast, you'll make schedules, you'll make payroll, but for the life of you, you can't make sense of this thing called life. What's it mean? The beginnings and ends of life, cradles and cancers and cemeteries and questions, the why of it all keeps you awake. As your husband sleeps and the world waits, you stare. Why? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? To make a little more? Buy something newer? Bigger? Another relationship? Another encounter? Where are you going to find purpose? Where are you going to find meaning? Uh, Another toke? Another snort? Another drink? It's going to bring you peace? And satisfaction. Lucado also says this, for some, even for many, hope is in short supply. Hopelessness is an odd bag. Unlike the other bags, it's not full. This bag is empty. Its emptiness creates a burden. It's interesting, an empty bag creating a burden. Unzip the top, examine the pockets, turn it upside down, shake it hard. The bag of hopelessness is painfully empty. The bag of hopelessness is painfully empty. Mark Twain and Steve Jobs. You know, they were from different eras, different generations, but they had something in common. You know what it was? Hopelessness. How many of you have read Isaacson's biography on Jobs? I read it a couple of years ago. It was really one of the darkest books I've read. If you know anything about Steve Jobs, he's probably one of the most creative geniuses that's walked on our planet. At the same time, he's one of the most difficult men in the world to be around, and his kids, when he died, his kids hated him. I, I, I mean, I, I, that's the way it was. Isaacson, in an interview just before he died, writes these words. Job says, I'm 50-50 about believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. I'd like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom, and then it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives that maybe your consciousness endures. But I don't really believe that. I don't believe that. I I think we're like an on-off switch. Click, we're gone. Maybe that's why I never like to put on and off switches on Apple devices. Is that hopelessness? Click, you're gone. Nothing else. Mark Twain, do you know the story of his life? His brother died at age 20 in a steamboat accident. Twain blamed himself for his death. He had one son who died at age 19 from diphtheria, 19 months from diphtheria. He had two daughters, one who died at age 23 and one at 29 from different diseases. Instead of being drawn to God, he was drawn away from God. He became bitter, pessimistic, lonely, unhappy, 
and hopeless. Finally, he writes at the end of his life, he died at age 74, if there is a God, he would never have put me through such misery. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. No hope whatsoever apart from the living God. Why would you turn to anyone else, anywhere else, if the life sustainer and the life giver is available to you? The infant is life. The infant is also light. He's also light. In John, in John chapter 1, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So the true light is the Savior who came into the world. The good news about this light, it will never go out. It will always shine to make our pathway clear, and it dispels the darkness at all times. Charles Wesley got it right again. And hark the herald angels sing, here's one of the choruses. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Where do you think he got that from? Light and life to all he brings. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was a light of men. It lighted life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. So the infant's revealed. We know who he is. So how do we respond to him? How do we respond to him? Well, John lays it out once again. John's very clear. Beginning in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He was the creative power behind the world. And the world did not know him. So he presented himself to the world, and the world did not know him. Then in verse 11, he came to his own, the Jewish people. And those who were his own did not receive him. So he came to the world and they rejected him and he came to his own people and they rejected him. Verses 10 and 11. Then in verse 12, if you write in your Bible, circle the word but. In contrast to those who rejected the Savior, but as many as receive katalambana to grasp, to take a hold of, as many that grasp him, as many that receive him, even to those that believe in his name, skip the clause in the middle, I'll come back to that. Even to those, what does it mean to receive? It means to believe in his name, to believe in the name of Christ. The name is the totality of who he is. The gospel is receiving him, trusting in him, placing faith in him who gave his life on our behalf. And when that happens, if you back up in that verse, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How does this happen? You're not born of blood. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your race. You're not born of the will of the flesh. It's not your striving and desire. It's not the will of man. It's not your ability to accomplish, achieve, or work for it. But you were born of God. Hopelessly, helplessly lost. God sends into our world his eternal son, fully God, fully man, at the incarnation to become the one who would allow us to receive him so we could be with him for all of eternity. Christmas began in the heart of God. It's complete only when it reaches the heart of man. You see, in eternity past, God planned this. And now, as we trust Christ as Savior, we understand it. Wesley got it right again. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Worship team, you guys here? 
I know you don't want to be, but uh, we're going to do we're going to do this Christmas carol. Yeah, here they come. Why don't you uh, welcome them? They're going to come uh, lead us in this Christmas carol. That they didn't really want to do, but uh, we're going to do it anyway, right? Because I'm the boss. <laughs> the infant in the manger is the eternal God of the universe. Don't ever get over it. Don't ever get over it. You go, wow. So this Christmas morning, when you get up, maybe before the kids tear into their presents and everything, why not as a family? You go, wow. Look who came. We weren't here last weekend because uh, we had the opportunity to keep our grandkids. This is Emerson Kate Riggs. Uh, she's our only granddaughter. We have four grandsons and one granddaughter. And it just so happens that Sarah daughter's here this weekend. And uh, they were on a little trip. And so Bev and I went to keep them. You remember what happened last weekend? Last weekend there was ice and it was really cold. You ever try and keep four kids seven under in a house for a weekend? Now, if Sarah wasn't here, I would tell you they were, uh, it was a challenge. But since she was here, we had a great time. It all went easy. <laughs> Not a problem. We'll do it again. Uh, the reality of it is, you know, by, the, by Sunday afternoon, we were so ready to get out of there. Boom, we were back in Temple. You know, they, they were great. We had a great time. But, but on Friday night of last week, there was a uh, meet the Santa at Emerson's preschool. And so the preschool she's in, when we went there, it's a large room, and the other boys had gone there, so we had been in that room many times. And we went Friday night, and in that big room, you can do a number of things. When you walk in, there are a couple hundred people. And there's one place where you can go and you can build gingerbread houses. You know how much fun that is for kids. And there's another place where you can go make snowmen, and you glue stuff on. There's another place you make Christmas cards for your parents. And then there's a place where you go take your picture with Santa, and uh, the three older boys love Santa. Emerson looks like an angel in that picture. She was a demon when she got to Santa. She hated She hated Santa. She's screaming. We got a picture. She's just screaming. Screaming. Didn't like Santa. There's a place where there were cookies and milk and hot chocolate. Me and the boys hung out over there. <laughs> but, you know, any time we wanted to find Emerson, if she snuck away, well, she never snuck away from us. If she got, you know... <laughs> May never see my grandkids again. <laughs> but Emerson always made her way back to the manger. To the baby in that manger. And uh, all this stuff was gone on in the room. But all Emerson wanted to do is go back to the baby. If she could care less, all the other things were happening in that room. She wasn't interested in the cookies. She wasn't interested in the gingerbread house. She wasn't interested, she wasn't interested in all the trappings. Her focus was on the baby. And uh, we got this picture of her. Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? God, eternal God, in the flesh, so that we can have eternal life. How can we not worship and adore him? How can we not make him the focus all the other things taking place in the rooms of our life. And, and there's nothing wrong with those things if they're in the right perspective. But in this, the way we're supposed to be responding to the Christ child, the infinite that became an infant, so we could dwell in the infinite's presence for all of eternity. If you're here today and you're not sure if Christ is your Savior, you can receive him, the scriptures say.
receiving him is trusting in the work that he's done on the cross on your behalf. It's not by your blood. It's not by your works. It's not by anything else. It's by Christ and Christ alone. And maybe you walked in this room and you were hopeless today. Maybe your marriage has gone south, your kids have gone north, and your job has gone east, and you want to go west. You've walked in feeling hopeless. Why would you turn to anyone except the life giver and the life sustainer to find meaning and purpose in this life? Why? Well, we're going to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That chorus, that song has great theology, as you just saw. And uh, when we sang it, I want you to remember John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Okay? So why don't we stand? Nothing like uh, your pastor selling you out. (laughs) Actually, the options, in defense of you, the option was either we sing it or he does. So, (laughs) figure. We are very joyous about this song, as you're going to sing with us with all you got. beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thank you, Jesus. We go in your name. Amen.